Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello. So nice to be with you again. Welcome to the last couple of years, decades of the Minor Prophets. Yeah. So we're covering Haggai and uh, Zechariah. We're 100 years after mm-hmm. our Nahum and Habakkuk and Zephaniah. So let's start with our three questions. Uh, how does this bring me closer to Christ? How does the Book of Mormon help me understand the Old Testament? And how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? Fortunately, Zechariah is filled with a lot of Messianic prophecies. Mm. You know, I've tried to find a Messianic prophecy in each of the minor prophets. You know, we had Micah testifying of the birth being in Bethlehem and a lot of them talking about our Savior taking on our sins. But Haggai refers a lot to the temple. And I'm wondering if I can see the Savior in the temple because it's but as we go through Haggai, let's keep your ears open for any types of Christ. I mentioned that we're about 100 years later. These are chronologically arranged and generally speaking. And Haggai's main message is the a few people from Babylon have come back to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And many of them are Jews. Many of them are from the tribe of Levi, the Aaron priests in the temple, but other tribes have also come back. We have evidence of Asher and Benjamin that came back as well. And not very many came back. They think about 50,000 returned, and that's only about one-sixth that were taken. Mm. So they think a lot of other children of Israel are spread across the diaspora or else chose to stay there. And we know Esther and that her family, Mordecai, chose to stay there. You know, mm-hmm. Obviously, Daniel is still there at this time period. And we are at the same period where Ezra and Nehemiah are writing. And so just as a review of history for the timeline, those three deportations from Jerusalem over to Babylon started in about 606, and then the sieges in um, 597 and 589, where more and more groups were taken, all parallel to the time that Lehi's family is leaving. Okay. But in 538, about 70 years after that first deportation, is when we get that first group. I'm going to call them Jews, but it really is first group of all those that were living in the southern tribe. Many tribes were included. And then this wonderful Haggai gives us not only the year that he's writing, he tells us exactly who's reigning on the throne so we can get the years right, but he also tells us the month. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of that is you can see the miracle of the Lord's timing here. As we see, oh, the harvest is over. Now they have some free time. They're being called to go back and work on the temple. The Lord is not asking them to drop everything and haphazardly scatter. You know, he's asking them to do things in wisdom and order and prioritize the work on the temple. So in 535, the temple workers are stopped by the Samaritans. Mm. And in Ezra, I don't know if you remember back, but Ezra says like chapters 5 and chapters 6 that he mentions Haggai as the prophet, but he doesn't mention his message. And he says, we stopped working on the temple because of the Samaritans. But Haggai says, the Lord thinks you're not working on the temple because your priorities are not facing the temple. Mm. You have got to align your priorities with God. So even though for 16 years now, the Israelites have been offering sacrifice on the altar, they have not rebuilt the temple. They've had this hiatus and they've been blaming it on the Samaritans. 
But Haggai gives his first sermon in about 520. And he says, you need to finish the temple. That's just what we read in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Right. When he says Haggai's preaching. And then we get um, Haggai 1 says, now it's the 24th day of the sixth month. And then in Haggai 2, it's now the 21st day of the seventh month. You know, it's almost like his journal writing. You know, it's, it's really a beautiful connection here that we have with the prophet day by day writing out, I, here's my sermon that I received from the Lord. And we can take these dates and go back in history and ask on a Hebrew calendar, if they were using a Hebrew calendar, when would this be? Now, that's the part I don't know. Are they using a Babylonian calendar? Are they using a lunar calendar? Are they using a solar calendar? So I'm not going to prophesy that these dates were exactly August of 518, but it appears to be about that time. When we look at the book of Haggai, he repeats this one phrase over and over, consider your ways. And I feel like it's such a great message for us in our day and age, as we are also asked to return to the temples and to build more temples and to attend more often. This post-exilic time period really feels like it's part of our time period too. I think to understand both books of Haggai and Zechariah is helpful just to review that there's four major characters here. When the Persians allowed the Israelites to come back, um, they put a political descendant of King David, Zerubbabel, on the throne or, or in the position of as a governor. He's not on the throne. And then we have a high priest who comes back who is a descendant of Aaron, just like he should be. And his name is Yeshua or Joshua, or in Greek, Jesus. And he is a type of Christ. And then, of course, we have our two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. They're preaching about the same time, uh, possibly six months of a difference, but about the same time, according to Ezra and Nehemiah, both say that they're preaching then. And it appears that Haggai, in chapter 1, has this sermon during Darius's second year of his reign. And it says it's the first day of the month, which in the Hebrew religion would have been a new moon. So it would have been a holy day Mm. and a sacred time. And he says, you guys are having a hard time making ends meet, but it's really because you're missing the spiritual blessings. And I I love the description of how the, it sounds like you're putting money into your pockets and your pockets have holes in them, or you're putting water into your bucket and they're falling out. You know, it's described beautifully about this spiritual drought. He said, the reason why you can't make your ends meet is because you haven't met God's needs. And until we get this temple finished, We're not going to be able to do it. We're in a time of a spiritual drought. But God wants to glorify his people. You know, he wants Jerusalem to be rebuilt. But at this time, you know, they've only been back 20 years or so. They've been working on the temple for 16 years, sort of on and off. But there's rubble everywhere. It says their houses are finished. But I presume since the city was burned, there's a lot of blackened ruins. Right. And, um... They're saying, you know, we need food. We need money. We're trying to justify themselves. And the prophet says, nope, put your priority on building the Lord's house. Your homes are built. You even have paneling in your home. I don't know exactly what paneling was in that day and age. But he said, God is going to bless the earth if you'll be obedient. You will have plenty to eat if you're obedient. But get your priority straight and get your allegiance to God first and then the Lord will take care of the rest. To me, it's the same blessings as the law of, of tithing. Yeah. It's not really a financial law. It's a spiritual law. 
I'm thinking about this because uh, the, the same things caught my eye to, you know, consider your ways. Things aren't working out. You know, you're not as efficient or you're not quite getting there. Reset your priorities mm -hmm. and put the Lord first. Like you said, like, you know, the law of tithing is exactly it. Prove me now herewith, right? Yes. And chapter two, I just love this. Um, Haggai asks, do you want to read chapter two, verse two? Speak now, uh, Zerubbabel. There we go. Okay. Don't worry about it. Let's just skip down. Why don't we start with, um, can you read for me chapter two, verse three? Yeah. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And So is Haggai 70 years old? I mean, the temple was destroyed over 70 years ago. Mm. So I'm trying to think, wow, is he one of those that saw it in its first glory? Because he's saying, look at this. Right. Anyway, keep, keep reading. I think this is interesting. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's nothing compared to what yeah, it used to yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody is an old enough man that he's saying, hey, can any of you remember what this used to look like? And maybe they had artistic representations of it. I don't know. But the bottom line is, starting in verses four and five, get to work. You know, I'm with you. I'm for you. I can help you. If you guys would start, I can help you. Don't worry about the Samaritans. Don't worry about getting food on your table. The harvest is over as we look at the date of this sermon. You know, the timing is a little bit later. Uh, you know, August is a very, very hot time, though, in Israel. Yeah. And I keep thinking, oh, you're asking them to get to work in 100 degree weather. <laughs> yeah, But he said, you will be, this is chapter two, verse seven, the desire of all nations. And this place is going to be where you can find peace. That's verse eight and nine of chapter two. Mm. Um, and I think one reason why this is a place where we can find peace as we look for the prophecies of our Savior, this is going to be where Jesus is, will, will minister during his ministry. Yeah. Now, Zerubbabel's temple is expanded under Herod, the great builder, but it's... It's still the second temple. Mm. Well, it's magical. I mean, this this comes true. It's, it remains true to this day, right? This is a place where people go from all over the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, although the temple was destroyed again in 70 AD by the Romans, the, still the location is known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where the Dome of the Rock is currently situated and many other mosques. But that's why we go to worship there. Um, the third sermon starts, so his second sermon is chapter two, verses one through nine, get to work basically. And then his third sermon starts in verse 10. And I think that the Lord is asking about holiness. You know, he's observing this defilement and he said, um, it's much easier to pass on sin than it is to pass on holiness. And yet if we can touch he who is holy, we can become holy too. So we have to seek repentance and seek forgiveness. It's a beautiful, sacred dimension of life. So let's look at verses 12 and 13. Do you want to start there? And then answered Haggai and said, so is this people. And so is this nation. You know, if you're going to continue to affiliate with wickedness, you're going to be wicked. You've got to change the inside. It's not the outward motions. And I want you to have a place of holiness to come to. I want you to be sanctified by your temple worship. It's really powerful, isn't it? And I feel so blessed in our day and age, not only to have so many temples. I remember 
Um, for years and years, I lived eight hours from our temple. And we drove every month <laughs> to go to our temple, you know. And now they're so much closer, and it's such a blessing. And I feel like we're also blessed that all of us who can go and worship there can leave wearing part of our temple with us. You know, the, the temple garment can t go with us and we can have temples now in our homes and we can think about these things wherever we are in the world and remember our covenants on a regular basis. Yeah, what stands out to me for this in, in, in terms of, you know, teaching some Christ is, you know, one hand on the plow is a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, in this case, sometimes literally for them, right? Um, but uh, the the uh, the encouragement to say, you know what, make this one hundred percent of your priority, yeah. even in these scary times, right? Mm -hmm. um, to to rebuild the temple, and you'll be blessed. And then he goes on to his fourth sermon, chapter two, verse twenty, and this goes on and prophesies of the Messiah. So mm. let's take a look at um, verse 21 to 23, maybe? Should we? Yeah. Speak unto Zerubbabel, speak unto Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the, of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. And the horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, I will make thee a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Yeah, just skip down to that last line. I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And this idea of the signet, even our footnotes help us with that. Um, with other verses that refer to it. This is the king's promise. Mm. You know, this is the king's seal. Our God is our king. And with his sealing power, he has chosen us and we will honor him as the Lord of hosts. That is the testimony of Haggai. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And then we've got our book of Zechariah, much longer in length, but because he starts preaching six months after Haggai, place him afterward. And it appears that he is speaking between about 520 and 516, depending on which part we're looking at. Initially, he has these eight beautiful visions in the first few chapters where an angel explains the vision. He asks questions. And it reminded me of Nephi being able to ask his angel questions. What does this mean? And that's just what happens here with Zechariah. But it appears that Zechariah may come from a priestly family. He's a prophet, though, in Jerusalem. And it sounds like he's helping Haggai rebuild the temple. The mm. two of them are working hand in hand. And he starts prophesying in just a couple months after Haggai. And then he preaches for two years. And I see his theme mentioned in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Turn unto me, and I will turn to you. You know, this idea of turning and turning sharply is repentance in the Old right. Testament. I love it. Return to me, you know, turn back to me. And I almost feel like the Lord is always turned toward us, but we have to turn around in order to see him and hear him. You know, yeah. it's not that he isn't wanting to be there, but if we're going the wrong direction, we're not going to be there. I want to mention something about the name Zechariah. It means the Lord Jehovah remembers 
And it is such a common name in the Old Testament. I just got a little list out, and I, there's three ways of spelling it. So in the New Testament, they spell it with an A-S, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist and husband of Elizabeth, the priestess as well from Aaron. But Zechariah, whether you're spelling it with an E or an A, is mentioned 40 times in the Bible of different people, wow. different people. And sometimes we get them mixed up. And I, the reason why I'm mentioning this is this Zechariah is a prophet in about 600. But there's a prof, there's a high priest, the one reigning high in 900, who is killed at the altar. Mm. But in the New Testament, two gospels, Matthew and Luke, have Jesus saying, you guys are so wicked. From the time of Abel down to Zechariah, you've been wicked. And people have assumed that possibly that meant John the Baptist's dad. But John the Baptist's dad was not a high priest who was killed in the altars of the temple, and neither was this prophet Zechariah. They're all different people, and they're a thousand years apart. So let's not confuse up our Zacharias because we've got so many of them. But this wonderful is prophet comes from a priestly family who was taken from Babylon back to Jerusalem to try to help the work of God. And while he's obeying God, I feel like he's in the right place at the right time. And the Lord gives him this fabulous message on the second coming. We get a lot of prophecies of our Savior's first coming as well. And I think we'll recognize most of those. Anything else before we jump into the text? No, thank you for that. That puts a lot of perspective on, on um, on the text. Okay. Let's dive in then. We get his his name, um, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. You know, mm-hmm. we get his genealogy there. And part of the reason why the New Testament gets it mixed up is because Matthew mixes up these pro- the two prophets. It's it's it, I don't want to throw stones just at the interpreters. Matthew also gets it mixed up there. But um, he starts out with these eight visions. He has his prophetic call, and then um, that's verses one through six. And then in verses 7 through 17, this first vision of where um, the Lord prophesies where his house needs to be. And he sees a man on a red horse, and then there's other colored horses, and he asks, how long? And the second vision has these destroyers where the horn comes up to scatter and destroy Israel. But then it has the vision of the four carpenters, at least carpenters in King James. You know, in Hebrew, it would be builder. Um and I like thinking of them often in the Israel environment as stonemasons, too, because you usually build things with stone. So these builders are going to come after the destruction. And I almost see this vision as Zechariah is asking, you know, who are these carpenters? What are they rebuilding? It is his time when they're rebuilding the temple as well as future and past visions as well. The third vision starts in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where... Um, Zechariah sees someone measuring Jerusalem. And sometimes measuring is used for sacred space. You know, we did a lot of measurements with the temple. And past prophets have measured the size of things where sacred spaces are going to be. But it seems here that Jerusalem is going to be inhabited with lots of people and that we need to measure off this sacred space, that it will be protected. And it sounds like it will be protected from fire, Mm. that the people are going to come in from the wilderness, but the world will be at peace. This second vision, this chapter two, verse one through 13, this third vision is filled with a lot of hope. And I see it wondering 
is it just Zechariah's future temple or is it the temples that will be built in the last days as well? I don't in sacred space. I don't know. But chapter three starts our fourth vision, and they use the word Satan. You know, I mentioned mm. when we started Genesis that right. this is not a word that's mentioned very often in the Old Testament. You know, we get a lot of it in Job, but other than that, it's just three other books that talk about it or so. Um, three or four, Genesis obviously does not, nor does the word devil is never in the whole Bible, but the Old Testament. Before we finish this vision in chapter two, would you mind reading verse 10? It's just beautiful. Yeah. Chapter two, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? I love so that. we've had these carpenters building and we the holy city again, and then we've had the measuring of a righteous Jerusalem, and the Lord says, Rejoice, I'm going to come and dwell in the midst of thee. The next vision starts in chapter three, and that is um, the fourth vision where Satan is silenced. And we have the reference to Satan in chapter three, verse two. Yeah. This is one of the rare instances in all the Bible where the name Satan is mentioned. We've got a a few times in Job, the book of Job. Right. But other than that, you know, it's just not mentioned very often. And the word meaning adversary or the word meaning this, this wicked person may not reference specifically to the man that we refer to who became, who was Lucifer, who became the devil. I I don't know, but I think it fits. I just know that other commentaries have opened that doorway. But in chapter three, verse one, we have the high priest, Joshua or Yeshua, who's this symbol of Christ, because we're told in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that Christ is the great high priest and all others are typified by him, by typifying Christ. So we have the high priest standing before the angel and Satan is there or this adversarial being is there and the Lord rebukes Satan and it's interesting to me, if we look at the high priest as a type of Christ, that Christ also, during his temptations, will rebuke Satan. Mm-hmm. So I see this as prophetic in that, because Scripture can have multiple levels of interpretation. That's why our Lord uses parables, is they can be interpreted on different levels. And I see this uh, fourth vision here in chapter 3 doing exactly that. And I see that the high priest is given this holy robe and it's to function in behalf of the Lord. And I see it also, if we're, if we're given the robes of the Lord, we are receiving the Lord's atoning sacrifice. Remember, kafar, right. atonement in Hebrew is this covering and endow or endu is to clothe. And so the Lord is wanting to clothe us in his robes of righteousness, which is so beautifully described in um, Nephi Psalm, second Nephi chapter four. But before we lose any uh, these filthy garments that are having to be taken off, the their sins of the people. Remember, the high priest has to carry the sins of the people. Right. So his garments are filthy. And then it says in the bottom of verse four. I'm still in chapter three. I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee in with changed raiment. 
this is a temple text. The high priest is there in the temple. He's going to be removed from the garments that were splattered with the blood or the wickedness of the people. And he is now going to be placed in the white linens and be able to be cleansed again in that sacred place where he receives that change of raiment. That is just beautiful. And um, he gets a miter on his head. This is also one of the high priest wears a hat or a, it was called back in Leviticus sometimes a bonnet. But here it's a miter a board, a miter board that's placed on. And why don't we read verse seven? This is beautiful. Chapter three, verse seven, thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then shalt thou also judge my house and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. And that's referring to the angels. You know, this is in his vision. And I see this possibly referring specifically to this high priest that's working, that's going to have an opportunity to go into the temple again once they finish building the temple. Joshua, the high priest of Haggai and Zerubbabel's time is, um, and Zechariah's time. But I also see it as prophesying of our Savior that if we will walk in his ways and if we will keep his commandments, then Christ can judge his house and he will keep his courts. And remember when Christ cleanses the temple, mm. he is cleansing those courts of the second temple, even though they've been added onto by Herod. It's, it's still that place. Verse 8 also testifies of Christ. You see at the very end of verse 8, Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. I was looking at that, yeah. Yeah, and, and King James didn't want us to miss it up, so they capitalized <laughs> it to make sure that we know that this branch is this root of Jesse or this stem yeah. of Jesse that's going to grow out of David's lineage, who is going to be the promised Messiah. This is who we believe is Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. This powerful, and even the word Nazar, Nazareth, branch, he is going to come from Nazar, Nazareth, which is, some people interpret it that way anyway. But let's move on to the next vision. The fifth vision starts in chapter 4. And he's, again, we talk about the temple being rebuilt. The angel has to wake him up this time. Yeah. <laughs> and Zacharias sees the candlestick, which I think is the menorah, which is a type of the tree of life mm. that we talked about earlier. And so we're back in the temple and he sees this interesting olive tree. It's going to produce oil or eternal light. And remember that first pressing of the olive oil was used in the temple to make the light. And Christ refers to himself with these same images. Remember, olive oil is used in anointing, and the word Messiah is anointed. The priests are anointed. The kings are anointed. The Messiah is the anointed one. And we have this image of the temple where this anointing is going to be produced, not only to produce eternal light, because the oil is used as their source of light, but also, I think it refers to the eternal life because mm. it's also the wick of the menorah. You know, it's the source is going to be this eternal life. And our anointed ones are these types of Christ. So that is just a beautiful imagery of the anointing is going to be filled in the temple. We are going to have so much anointing that the olive tree himself will be there. And the olive tree, I see as also symbolic of Gethsemane, which is the olive press. It was right. placed in the olive orchard where Christ began the atonement. So that's my favorite vision, number five. But number six starts in chapter five. And mm. He sees this enormous scroll. It's third. He gives it by cubits. But if we look at it into feet, remember a cubit's about a foot and a half, 18 inches. It was the king's measurement from the fingertip to the elbow. 
And so it's about 30 feet by 15 foot scroll. It's this enormous scroll that he sees in heaven. And it outlines the principles of justice. It's got God's laws written on them. Mm. And the scroll also includes a curse, it says. And the punishments are given so we know that we will be accountable for our actions. And finally, we get vision eight in chapter six, where the four chariots have these two brass mountains and the colorful horses. And they're going to, I see this as they crown the high priest and the people are coming into the throne and they're going to crown um, Joshua as their high priest here. But it's a beautiful messianic message as well, as we see our savior is going to be the one who will really rule and reign. Um, chapter six, verse, verse 13. Right. You want to read that? Chapter 6, verse 13. <clears throat> Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and it shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. Actually, we got to start at 12. Yeah, we got to start at 12. With yeah. the Would branch. you mind reading um, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13 for us? Yeah, 12 and 13. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he That's shall. That's our Savior. That's right. <laughs> And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Do you remember in the New Testament when Christ says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again? Yeah. You know, when it says here in verse 12 that he will grow up, of this place, and he shall build the temple. I see that his body, he is his body is growing because the temple is the meeting place between God and man, and Christ is the way that we can meet God. He is our mediator. Christ's body becomes the temple. The house of the Lord is the body of Christ symbolically, and we then have this sweet opportunity. Um, to receive him, to partake of his flesh and blood symbolically in remembrance of him so that we too can be joined with heaven's temple. Um, I love the imagery of Christ's body as the temple. And I see the temple veil as Christ's body. I see the temple altar as Christ's body. Vicarious sacrifices are carried out there. Each part, the menorah, the, the tree of life represents Christ's body. We have to partake of Christ before we can partake of that fruit that is so delicious. And we have to partake of Christ's body, the atoning sacrifice, before we can not only enter into his presence and receive eternal life, but before we can taste that, which is so delicious, mm. you know. It's just fabulous imagery right here. Zechariah chapter 6, that is a vision, the Lord, the eighth vision uh, right before the coronation. And then in chapter 7, he gives this prophetic message. And we're told now that it's Darius's fourth year of reign. So that's it looks to me as if we're in December or January of 518 or 517. But he really comes down now with some heavy prophecies. Mm. As he finishes up his eight visions, we now turn to just denouncing the empty worship. Going through the motions is not enough. And, you know, these people have only been back, you know, a handful of years, 20 years almost. And he's saying, you know, you're, you're back it, to being hypocrites again. And ever since the temple was destroyed back in um, 589 B.C., the Jews or the people of Israel that were in Babylon began fasting a couple times a year on the fifth month and the and the they were fasting in July. 
And so they come to um, Zechariah and they say, do we need to keep fasting? I mean, we're rebuilding our temple yet. The temple isn't finished until 516. But they say, do we need to keep fasting if we are not, um, if we're building the temple again? And the Lord answers them in such an interesting way. He said, let's look at that. So as we look at Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, the Lord is answering them. And he says, was it really for me that you fasted? This is the Mm. NIV translation, skipping down a little bit. Were you not just feasting for yourselves? You know, are you just going without food or are you taking care of the poor and the needy? And then he goes on to talk about the social injustices that are already existing again, just like Haggai did, Mm. which is really powerful. Actually, many former prophets have talked about the social injustices. And we are in a horrific state of having very rich and very poor in the world. And our prophets have been asking us to increase our offerings to help cover some of these and increase our law of consecration to help with our time with refugees and and taking care of the poor in our own towns and communities. And I just feel like the message here of Zechariah is something that is so applicable. In verse 12, he says, you, you've had hard hearts. You know, there's adamant a stone, he says. And I want you to soften your hearts. I want the spirit to come in because I'm going to execute my judgment. You know, unless you're showing more compassion here, your fasting did not accomplish what it could have. And we need to completely turn. And that's where chapter eight starts with a prophecy of the millennium. Mm. Um, But I really appreciate his is chapter seven on that reminder that our fasts have got to be sincere and we've got to make sure that we're taking care of those in need with everything we can and not have so much financial discrepancy. There's an interesting Joseph Smith translation in chapter eight, starting out in chapter eight, verse three. Do you want to read that one? This is just beautiful. Yes, this is chapter eight, verse three. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So he's going back to these beautiful imageries of Mount Sinai, that the place where we meet with God is a temple. And then he continues on and talks about a remnant in verse six. And then in verse seven and eight, we have a Joseph Smith translation change. Mm. And in the King James, it says, I will save my people. But in the Joseph Smith translation, it's, I will gather my people. And that's a slightly different meaning. We will all be saved by our Messiah. We will all receive immortality. But the gathering is here and now. Mm. The saving will come afterward. But we are now to gather them. And God is in the work of the gathering. Do you want to read verse 8? Chapter um, 7, verse 8? Chapter 7? Chapter 8, verse 8. Uh, chapter 8, verse 8. There you go. Chapter 8, verse 8. And I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Isn't that fabulous? I and love then that. he goes on and talks about how the seed is going to be prosperous and the vine will bear their fruit. This is verse 12 of chapter 8, because before those days, the Lord's going to come and he's going to allow the truth to be restored again. He's going to set all men, every one, and the promises are great to both the punishments that are going to happen 
and the blessings that were going to happen. And he deals with both all through chapter eight. And we get a great feeling for this judgment that's going to come, but the peace that can come in our gates if we are sincere. And I thought it was interesting. In verse 19, he goes back and talking about the fasting again Mm. and says, you know, this is all part of it. I want you to have cheerful feasts and do it in truth and peace, that our fasting can be a good example of, of cheerfulness is also a good reminder. That does remind me of, you know, that fasting should be joyful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right here, Zachariah yeah. is saying it as well as Isaiah. Yeah. And then the ending of verse 23, I'm still in chapter 8. Mm-hmm. We have heard that God is with you. So because other people here were told that all these other nations are going to come seek the Lord because they've seen the good example. And of course, they'll only see the good example if the example is righteous. But that is very encouraging to our day and age as well, that missionary work, that the Lord's word of restoration will be able to be spread just as the Savior asked us to do upon his departure. Um, Missionary work will spread. As we read here in verse 23, Mm. we have heard that God is with us. And then comes chapter 9, another burden of the Lord, another hard message. But chapter 9 is also filled with messianic promises Promises as we continue on these chapters about the coming of the Lord. He calls it again a burden. And I know that it has to be lifted up, but it still is a prophecy of doom. So it's hard. But we get some beautiful messages of our Savior and Starting in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, he lists all these surrounding nations. But if we look at it messianically in chapter 9, verse 9, do you want to read that? It fits beautifully into our Lord's day and age too. Yep. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. So all four Gospels yeah. cite this when they describe our Savior's triumphal entry into Jerusalem during that Sunday morning, his last week of his life, of mortality at least. And it's a little confusing at the end where we have the colt, the foal of an ass. And so because of that slight confusion, Matthew has two animals present and Mark, Luke, and John just says, no, it's just one. There's mm. one there. It's fulfilling it. He was on one. He was writing one. But however many there were, I think it's a beautiful symbol that God is going to reign as our priest and our king. And that just as Solomon came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, our Savior will follow that pattern of kings coming in. And he was honored and praised, as we know. And it's Zechariah 9.9 that gives us that beautiful prophecy. Mm. In fact, the prophecies continue. Do you want to read 15? It just is Yeah, verse strong. 15. Mm-hmm. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones, and they shall drink and make a noise as the wine, and they shall be filled like bowls as the corners of the altar. God's going to fight our battles. You know, when we remember him and when we serve him, he's going to fight our battles. And then in 16, it says, their God shall save his flock. Mm. That's a verse of great hope. And interestingly, do you remember in the Feast of the Tabernacles, it's in the fall time. It's in conjunction often with the Day of Atonement. 
and they're praying for early rains. It's sort of their Thanksgiving. They bring their first fruits. They build their tabernacles, their booths around the temple. I think it's probably the same time of year when King Benjamin's sermon is given, when they're all surrounding the temple in their booths. And we see the same messages given by King Benjamin that we do then. They're praying for that again in chapter 10. And they ask the Lord for rain. And they want latter rains, and they need early rains. And this is a constant prayer of the people that live in the desert, that the Lord will give them more waters because they go for months and months and months without rain. So to have an early rain in the fall will allow them to plant earlier, which allows them to harvest more. And um, they're hungry, and they, they need this. And then the latter rain would be in the springtime to prepare more vegetables and fruit for the summers. So it's a it's a great hope and promise there in chapter 10 that God controls the elements. And we get this imagery again of another shepherd. And this time the king is the shepherd and the people are scattered just like the sheep in chapter 10 verse 3 to 8. They're scattered all over. But there's this implication of forgiveness that I just love. Can you read chapter 10 verse 4? Sure. Out of him came forth a corner out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. Yes. And as I think about a cornerstone and a nail and uh, the bow and the battle, you know, I feel like Isaiah referred to a nail in a sure place. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that in this yeah. reference of the, of the suffering servants and our Messiah. Um, this is really... Uh, interesting because the verses right before here are talking about the fact that there's no shepherd and that um, God's anger is against the people and he's going to come forth and he's going to be a cornerstone and he's going to be a, um, as it says here, a nail that's going to come and pierce them. And then in verse five, uh, they shall fight because the Lord is with them. So once we receive the Lord as our cornerstone, once we have receive the Lord's uh, atoning sacrifice in our behalf. And then we will be able to, as it says in verse six, be strengthened the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph and I will bring them again to this place. You know, all these wonderful prophecies of the Lord's first coming, the Lord's second coming, and probably many times in between. Chapter 11 also talks about the two shepherds. Um, the staff for beauty is going to be cut down by the judge and the poor of the flock are the ones who are suffering. And he gives another beautiful prophecy of our Savior in in chapter 11, or actually not of our Savior, but of our Savior's time. Do you want to look at at chapter 11, verse 12? Yeah. Chapter 11, 12. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. And then keep going to 13. And Lord said unto me, cast it into the potter a goodly price that I was prized at them. And I took 30 pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So we see a little echo. And and it wasn't always the price of a slave, but it was often the price of a slave for 30 pieces of silver. There was some inflation over decades and centuries and millennial of time between these two, but that is exactly what Judas Iscariot receives for the price of Mm. turning in the Lord as if he were also a slave. 
fulfilling again this prophecy as well as the suffering servant prophecies in Isaiah. So we see lots of beautiful images of our Savior, and it's interesting that they're just tucked in here almost obscurely, and it takes a soft heart to be able to say, does this represent our Savior? And ask Him, and I hope as you're reading that the Spirit of the Lord will testify to you that, yes, this was intended. It required faith to see Him and to find Him, but yes, these were prophecies of our God. Mm. Yeah, so that's chapter 11. And he ends with um, chapter 12, this terrible burden of, of Israel. And that's the future second coming and millennium. He starts out with Jerusalem being attacked and delivered in chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. The city goes through mourning. They, people are feeling all sorts of guilt. And in addition to feeling guilt, it says that the people also are going to see the Lord at the time of his coming. Mm. And let's skip ahead. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Do you want to read that? Chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So I was interpreting this as the second coming. Mm. And all of us who have sinned, of course, are need to mourn for our sins. All of us who have sinned are those who have pierced our Lord, in a sense. And we all need to go through the process of repentance and forgiveness. And there will come a day and age when we can look upon him and he will still be carrying the marks of his death. Mm. It's a beautiful prophecy that um, we'll be able to look upon him and he will be on this this mountain. Mm. And we believe that it is actually going to happen on the Mount of Olives, that this location of Jerusalem is very significant for the first coming and the second coming. Yeah. No, that's, that's powerful. And as this last few chapters of 12, 13, and 14 continue up, we see this promise for inward blessings. If you'll just repent, that's 12, 10 through 14. And then in chapter 13, it begins with this promise of purification. You know, God's atoning sacrifice is going to remove our sins if we'll just go through the process. Do you want to read 13.1? Yeah, 13.1. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanliness. Yeah. The sins are there. And he continues talking about this stricken shepherd throughout the rest of chapter 13. And then in chapter 17, uh, we get this second coming, this beautiful promise of, of Christ coming. In chapter 14, it starts out, the day of the Lord is cometh. And mm. can you read verse 4? You'll recognize this as a second coming verse. Uh, chapter 14, verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a great, a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. Yeah, and in, it's interesting to read about this in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants because mm-hmm. they also prophesy of Zechariah's same messages here that the Lord gave Joseph this information. And, and section 45 is one of our best sections on the second coming. Section 29 is another good one. We have several, but um, this one is just powerful. And we see also this imagery of the... Feast of the Tabernacles, where water is coming now out of the temple. 
which is what they, they did. The priests would scoop up their vessels of water and pour them out of the temple. And we see this. I love chapter 14, verse 20, that even the horses on their belts are going to have holiness to the Lord, which is the message that was on the high priest's head and should be the message on all disciples' head. And may we, like those horses, gallop forth, ringing bells with holiness to the Lord. It's just a powerful, happy, happy way to end the book in thinking ahead to the second coming of our Savior if we can endure the trials. Yeah. What's remarkable about Zechariah in general is just how much this reads almost like a New Testament book. So filled with it's, prophecies yeah, of our Savior. It, it absolutely. First and second coming. Yeah, very clear and, and just powerful, you know, with the, all these clear, prophets. Clear, at least to us, it, after the fact. True, true. But just the remarkable trials in context of, you know, being carried away, which we read from these small prophets. And then we have, you know, the Zechariah, this prophecy of the Savior, what this really means. It's just a, it's a wonderful thing. Yeah, just fabulous. One more book to go in the Old Testament. Come yeah. back next week and let's talk about... Malachi. Malachi. See you then. Thank you.